With that, I'm going to introduce our guest speaker. Um, so, you know, I started this sermon series mostly as a way to let us have a few more voices from the congregation um, be able to share and have a little window into maybe what different Bible characters have been important to people and why. And when I was asking people, like one of the things that I had in my head was like, maybe I should ask people who are like teachers anyway, because that way they're less nervous, because it can be a little nerve wracking to get up and, and speak. And I thought of Christian because Christian is a, getting a PhD in classical studies at University of Michigan and has been a Latin professor um, and I know really enjoys it. And so I thought he'd be a great person to come up and share a little bit of his story. Um, one of the fun things that you might want to know about Christian is he is on the word panel for the National Spelling Bee, and so he is one of the um, pronouncers for the National Spelling Bee, which is really fun. Um, and also, I know that you enjoy the outdoors and got wife, uh, Jenny is a speech pathologist, kids, Claire and Ross. So we'll invite Christian up here, give him a warm welcome, be really excited to hear him speak. Hello, everybody. Um, thank you so much for the, for the introduction. Um, I'm Christian. Um, my pronouns are, are he, him. Uh, as Emily was saying, I am getting a PhD at the University of Michigan. I guess that's part of my qualifications. Yeah. Besides, it's just convenient. But also, um, no, I, my specialty is like 5th and 4th century BCE Greek. Uh, so I've gotten to do a lot of fun work with the New Testament. One of my favorite things I've done in Ann Arbor was actually teach a class mostly for, for graduate students, um, working through some of the New Testament, especially chronologically, like reading Mark first and then seeing how it compares with the other Gospels, uh, trying to do the same thing with Paul's epistles, and getting to watch things change and getting to see how we feel about things changing and whether or not, you know, the sort of the foundation we're holding on to is something that survives uh, an analysis like that. So I've really, I've really enjoyed doing things like that in Ann Arbor. Um, uh, Blue Ocean has really been a continuation of that kind of work for me. I'm going to use the word liberation and talk about liberating a lot because I feel like that's been a big part of, of, of our time here at Blue Ocean. Um, I, I have been teaching for a long time. I know this isn't a classroom. You're not going to be tested on any of this, so I don't want to bombard you with information. I was worried a little bit about that if it were my choice, right? I'd interrupt myself every five minutes and let you, or ask you questions and have a little give and take. Maybe you do group work with your neighbors. That could be uh, something that would, that would shut me up for a little bit. But um, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm going to try to mostly just walk you through this text and invite you to consider along the way where you might find some meaning. So I chose Jonah as my character, as my book from the, from the Hebrew Bible. First of all, I chose Jonah because it is super short. It is very short. Uh, we could read the book of Jonah in less time than it would take for me to give this sermon, undoubtedly. It's pretty easy to follow. Also, there's a lot of fun elements in this story. Uh, all the same, it has fascinated people throughout history. There have been so many different interpretations of this book. Um, some of the funnest conversations have been about the genre. Like, how are we supposed to read this this text? How, what did it mean to people anciently, and, and how can we still access some of that today? So I'm going to be focusing on that for sure. Uh, second of all, Jonah is a wild character. Um, last week we had Caroline talk about Ruth, right? This, this outsider woman who accomplished some beautiful things and left a legacy for her family to continue. I'm dealing with a man at the top of the hierarchy doing some less than exemplary things. So very different uh, angle coming at, at this guy from... Uh, 
I think also, even though Jonah is included among the prophets, we have to recognize that he's a rebel as far as the prophets go. Um, There's almost no emphasis on his preaching, no emphasis on what his audience should do in order to avoid the wrath of God or anything like that. It's Jonah who suffers in this text. That's weird, right? It's worth talking about. It's worth dealing with. Most importantly, why I thought about sharing it in this context is that I think the text makes some, uh, some implicit but also explicit invitations uh, still worth considering. I think that it is a book that aims us towards uh, a variety of, of forms of liberation. So quickly to recap the story, Jonah is called by God to warn the people of Nineveh that God's ready to judge them for their wickedness. Instead of doing that, Jonah takes off. He gets on a boat to flee to Tarshish. A storm comes and threatens to sink the boat, and ultimately everyone on board accepts that this is because of Jonah. If we had the time, I would have an aside here about lots and how much fun lots are and the role of lots throughout scripture and the history of lots, especially bibliomancy. Talk to me after. Um, (laughs) Jonah uh, tells the sailors to save themselves by throwing him into the sea and they do it and the storm stops. Jonah is then swallowed by a big fish or a whale, doesn't matter which, uh, which spits him out on land after three days. Jonah is then told again to go to Nineveh, which he does, and his preaching consists of, quote, 40 days more and Nineveh will be, Nineveh will be overturned. Um, and the people in the king immediately believe this and change their ways. As a result, God sees this and doesn't punish them. That's not the end of the story. Uh, Jonah then gets mad and said he wishes that he were dead. See the handout for the rest of it. This is Jonah 4, 5 to 11. Uh, Jonah camps outside the city to see if it's really going to be spared. Uh, The Lord gives Jonah a little vine for some shade. Jonah's happy again, but he is still waiting to see the city get destroyed. So the next day, the Lord takes away the vine with help from a worm, and the sun and the wind make Jonah upset again, and then the Lord chastises Jonah for caring so much about the plant, especially compared to the destruction of Nineveh. So that's our story. The first invitation that I think the text makes is away from interpreting it literally. I think we are invited not to take this as an account of things that happened historically. Uh, I think maybe more than any other book in the Hebrew Bible, except for Job, and Job is way too long and complicated to do that, so we're doing Jonah. Um, First of all, before we even encounter the big fish thing, Tarshish. For the audience, that would just represent the furthest possible way, uh, place away from from where Jonah is. Like, I would rather take a journey on a boat over the dangerous Mediterranean to the far reaches of the earth than do that. That's, that's what he means. Um, furthermore, uh, Nineveh, as the place he's supposed to go, of course, the wickedest city on earth, right? Elsewhere in prophetic texts, the Assyrians are the worst people on the planet. They are guilty of the worst atrocities. Uh, the nature of their worship is, is offensive in many ways. Uh, of course he's going to get called to the wickedest city on earth. And not only is the wickedest city on earth, it's also way, way, way too big. In chapter 3 of Jonah, it says that it is a three-day walk across the city. That's big. That's a big city. Can you, I mean, that's, maybe he's a slow walker. We'll, we'll give him room to, for that to be it, but that's just so big. Um, this, this is exaggeration for effect, right? And, and I think we should be okay with that. And then we get our big fish, whale, whatever, People have tried. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out. Throat's not big enough. Guts aren't big enough. He's not surviving in there. Um, it, it, for the point of the story, right, God provides the whale. And on that same level, the vine that comes up, right, grows in a day and then shrivels after a day, 
right? God provides these things for, for the point of the story. Um, also, the whole city immediately repents, like on the spot. Not without precedent, I guess. There are, there are kings in the Hebrew Bible who do that, but this is pretty wild, and this is why. Here's the cat joke. Um, the animals are ordered to fast with them. When the king gives his decree, he says, the animals aren't going to eat either. So there are points, there are other points in the Hebrew Bible where the killing of the animals is supposed to be part of the cleansing of a land or a city, right? That, that's, that they have a role in it, but, but to make them repent, to make them fast as part of their repentance, yeah. it's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in my household, right, I'm lucky enough to share a house with the world's loudest cat, and I can let you know, I don't think she gets repentance. Daphne would not be down... <laughs> For, for going without food for three days, I think she would let us know um, she wouldn't change her ways. Uh, so that, that's a weird thing, right? And, and there's, there's something funny, there's something almost satirical about that, right? Lastly, Jonah's reaction to the Lord's wrath being averted and to the loss of his shade just feel extreme to the point of caricature, right? It's accomplishing something within the story. Like, you would rather die than see this city be preserved? Really, Jonah? Um, you'd rather die than lose the shade that you were enjoying for a day? Like, you're, we're into the realm of, of, of the ridiculous, right? He's at his silliest, but it accomplishes something for the story. That extreme juxtaposition, it's pretty clear why it's in the story, right? We have reduced Jonah to this moment, and then we get, I think, the most beautiful, most intimate moment uh, that we have there in verse 11. You'll see that it ends with a rhetorical question for Jonah, and for us, and it's only because Jonah's been just about as silly as possible, and uh, I'll get into why I think that isn't uh, necessarily not us. As a result of these elements, the vast majority of serious scholars consider Jonah to be fiction. Some of them go as far as to say that it's probably originally satirical or, or parody. Um, it is funny, right? It's a good story, but there's also some humor in it. So that's the first invitation. That's the first way of liberating ourselves from these literalist, fundamentalist readings is, yeah. if that was never intended that way, then what's it for? Yeah. Now we get to think about that. Why? Why this story? Why this character? Um, on the surface, it contains some pretty relatable messages. First of all, you can't run from God. All right, right? I think maybe some of us feel that way. Some of us, there's something in there that we can relate to. Despite all that we've experienced, we still feel a pull towards something something churchy, something resembling a church, right? There's still something we want to hold on to. I think maybe there's, there's a thread in there that we can relate to. Um, I think it's probably less than inspiring as far as a reason to do the right thing out of, out of fear of punishment or, or because you're always being watched. I, I don't like that one. Um, I think actually the shortcomings of using fear of punishment as a motivation come to light more clearly by the end of this story. It's also a story of successful preaching. Right? Jonah showed up, and it worked. The people repented, right? That has to have inspired some people throughout the ages to go out and do that kind of work, right? Um, and if that's, what, if that's what it does for you, then right, good for them. It's on the surface. It's right there. If it's inspiring, yes, please. I think the big one, though, is forgiveness, right? It's a story of forgiveness for Jonah. Um, the whale swallows him, but it keeps him from drowning, right? He's out in the ocean. This is a story of, of preservation, um, and he emerges unscathed, at least physically, probably no matter what we're imagining the inside of that big fish was like, that's mentally, emotionally scarring. Probably had some unpacking to do after, after that experience, but he at least is preserved, um, and, and he gets a second chance. It should be noted that, that he has to earn that second chance in this telling, 
right? Chapter two is almost entirely a prayer. It's in poetry. It's mostly derived from the Psalms. It's kind of beautiful, but it's after that prayer that Jonah gets delivered. Um, he doesn't smoke his way out of the whale, if that's what you were thinking. That's Pinocchio. Um, <laughs> Pinocchio's the one that does that. You may also be thinking of VeggieTales. Uh, I know, right? How many? We all saw it. Um, right inside of the whale, that's where the gospel choir shows up and sings, God is a God of second chances. A fun moment. I have to say for my family, um, about 20 years ago, my oldest nephew was a toddler at the time, woke up screaming in the night one night. My sister rushes in, what's wrong? And the only thing she could get out of him was, Jonah, Jonah. We didn't, we didn't know what that meant. Um, but the next time I watched it with him, that scene came on and he ran over to me and put his hand on my arm and I was looking for comfort. I was like, oh, this scene freaks him out. Anyway, God's still a God of second chances, but in our family, there's that funny memory associated. Um, he's old now. He's okay. like in his 20s. Yeah, he's, he's over it. Um, we hope. I'll ask. I'll ask. Um, anyway, uh, right. Uh, there is certainly forgiveness for Jonah in this story, but even more than that, forgiveness for the people of Nineveh. Right? This story still gets used. Um, the, many scholars have noted the universalism of God in the Hebrew Bible as remarkable right here, right? That he's forgiving a very wicked city pretty quickly, without much explanation. Um, this story is still read uh, on Yom Kippur, and the people, uh, I think, are meant to identify on the Day of Atonement with, with the people of Nineveh, not with Jonah, right? That, that it's the story of their forgiveness is something that, that we all want and hope for. So that's what I think is there on the surface of the story, maybe a little bit deeper on a character level. Um, Jonah can be an example of that. Just because you get one thing right doesn't mean you have it all figured out principle, right? We had with our man Zacchaeus, right? You're allowed to be more than one thing. Give space for Jonah to be more than one thing. He was right to repent and go back to Nineveh. Bad reaction when they repented. So just because you got one thing right. Yeah, there's that. A little more complicated. Um, What might it have meant anciently? Why was this book preserved if it isn't necessarily factual? There is a lot of potential for an allegorical reading, and I promise not to spend too much time on this, but... um, the story is set in the 8th century BCE, right? We need that because in the book of 2 Kings, there is a prophet named Jonah. Also, the 8th century BCE is where Nineveh gets destroyed. So for Nineveh to still be around, we need the story to be set then. But there's a message for the people in the post-exilic period. There's a message for people after um, they've been permitted to return um, following Babylonian captivity. So, so probably written in the 6th century or after um, right, that's later in time when we move BCE, right? Six centuries after eighth century. Sometimes you've got to remind people. Um, if that's the allegory, if that's the message, then Jonah becomes the people, right? Neglecting their responsibilities. That's why I included that bit from Exodus 19, that language in there that, um, that the Mosaic Covenant is about um, the people becoming a kingdom of priests. It's not just that they would oversee worship, but that they would actually mediate, right? They would be the people through whom um, God would, would be able to reach the rest of the world, right? It's an assignment. It's a call to serve uh, like Jonah's. And if they were not completing that, then for Jonah, he gets swallowed by a whale out of punishment. Um, the Babylonian captivity would then be the, the analog um, for that. Uh, and then getting a second chance, Jonah returns to Nineveh. The people return to the land of Israel. And then we get our warning, right? Jonah gets upset rather than rejoicing. I think the text's audience is invited with this allegory not to sit by and wait for the world to burn, but to rejoice when mediating between God and the people of the world is successful, and probably also to appreciate peace as it comes, however fleeting it may be. 
there is a problematic history with this interpretation. A lot of Christian authors have used this story's emphasis on Jonah's shortcomings, especially compared to the sailors who immediately see the, Lord, or see the Lord's work and start to worship the right God. Um, also, the people of Nineveh, they turn around real quick, real quick, right? We have these foreigners who are so ready to accept the truth, and we have Jonah who's who's not behaving the way he should. A lot of Christian interpreters have used this as a way to sort of judge the entire, the entire people, um, that this is the shortcoming of the people. Yeah. I want to move away from that. I don't want to allow anything that looks supersessionist at all in here. Please don't accuse me. Yeah, please don't accuse, uh, put me in, in with that group. Um, it's worth pointing out that this text doesn't end with a removal of Jonah's authority or with a condemnation of Jonah. It ends with this, this lovely rhetorical question um, that he is invited to consider, and I think that the rest of us, by extension, are also invited to consider. So whether or not this is allegory, this story is not about replacing ancient people or even having to learn from their mistakes. We're invited to view them as on a path, right? Um, learning from stories like Jonah, like we are, and then anticipating um, the sort of stories, that, the sort of teachings that would come after. I think we can connect through them through our shared mistakes and put ourselves on the same path with them, and we should feel fortunate to have their stories and, and in that way to be able to feel connected to the human family. So one of the best ways, I think, to see ourselves on this path through the book of Jonah is by looking through Jonah's eyes, which I think is another invitation that the text makes. Let's think about Jonah as a character. He's maybe a little more understandable than we think. Um, his reaction to that big assignment is fear. I think when we have big assignments, it's understandable to be afraid. Um, maybe it's like, hey, Jonah, write a dissertation. Oh, it's a big project. I think avoidance is maybe understandable a little bit. Um, uh, I, feel like, I feel with Jonah a little bit today. Um, that expectation also to watch the city burn I don't think isn't unreasonable for anyone familiar with the way this story has been told, right? From the exodus out of Egypt until the beginning of the Babylonian exile, there's been plenty of destruction of enemies that has been attributed to God in the early Hebrew Bible, right? That's in that context, I think, right? Jonah doesn't seem that, that far out there on a personal level. I think we all understand schadenfreude a little bit, right? Like We like seeing people who we think deserve to be punished, punished, right? It's maybe not our most... Christian and loving feeling, but, but it's understandable, it's relatable. Um, it's something that makes us, it's like, you know, hopefully Jonah got better at it, and we can too. Some people want Jonah to be upset because the people forgiven were not of the house of Israel. Again, problematic reading historically, but that is not in the text explicitly. Jonah's words were, 40 days more, and the city of Nineveh will be overthrown. If that doesn't happen, he's a false prophet, right? God made him a liar if 40 days pass and the city's not overthrown. I think maybe he's going to go camp out and see if that actually happens. Um, unless you think of it as there was an overthrow in the city of Nineveh. It wasn't the one he thought was going to happen. It happened well within the established time frame, right? The city changed. The city had a, had, a, had a renewal, had a rebirth. It wasn't what Jonah wanted, but maybe he should have. Um, so there's that potential reading that I like a lot. And finally, the reaction to minor inconvenience. Who stubbed their toe this morning? Who got stuck in traffic, right? You didn't deserve this. Aren't you on the way to church? Aren't we, right? Shouldn't, these, shouldn't, we, shouldn't the way be made easier for us? Maybe there's a little lesson in there for that. I can say it's been a hot summer. Um, the, the Wednesday evening baseball games were a lot more enjoyable than the one Saturday afternoon one. Uh, not fun sitting in the sun. Maybe it makes you do some wild things. Jonah, I do think this is, this is supposed to get Jonah at his weakest, right? It gets the text to its silliest point, but again, by getting here, 
having thrown off the burden of literal interpretation and analyzing this as a story with a message, we get to the most explicit and personal invitation in the text. This is where Jonah and we, I think, are invited to consider our priorities and to ask whether they've changed as a result of our experience with the divine. Jonah was forgiven but got upset when that same forgiveness was extended to people that he didn't think were worthy of it. He didn't see his neighbors as himself. Um, I'm, inv- I'm reminded of the prodigal son, right? The, the brother who returns, and when he finds out who the party is for, he refuses to go in. Um, I think that's a story about forgiveness, sure, but it's also a story about people sitting on the outside and judging that includes us. As far as a response to fear, that's why I put in the, the scripture there from 1 John to remember that, that perfect love is supposed to be a replacement for fear, right? The fear of punishment gets replaced by by um, being made perfect in love, right? That love that we first experience and then transforms us and we extend to others. I think that um, that through line is pretty easy to see in the, in the period that would come, the intertestamental period. That's when Rabbi Hillel said, that which is hateful to you, don't do to someone else, right? That's when Jesus pointed out that loving your neighbor as yourself is right there in the law, but people could probably do a better job of it. Uh, I think it was a good invitation back then for sure. Um, for the original audience, but for all readers since. Uh, how can we love our neighbor the same way that God has loved us? So if we've encountered the divine, how can we apply that further? Um, if we've felt something worth sharing, how do we take the step where it changes our behavior, especially toward others? If we've found acceptance through our personal encounter with the divine, then we're invited to extend that same acceptance We aren't asked to be complicit in abuse or oppression or to tolerate suffering solely in the name of learning from experience or anything like that, um, but rather to pursue justice motivated by by a higher love. I think it's also a good time to remember that radical changes of mind can take place and they can be liberating, but more likely there are steps to take, like our man Jonah, who who didn't have it all figured out. Being self-critical can be a difficult habit to form and can be exhausting. Jonah didn't get it all at once, but there's peace in requiring it not to happen all at once. So I think we can give ourselves that space today and allow others uh, to take that space as well. I don't want anybody to take this as a call to repentance or anything. I think, for me, there's just something comforting about that image of the Lord looking at us and showing us our priorities and holding them up next to divine perspective that feels, it feels liberating from some of the anxieties of the present. So that's my experience with the book and character of Jonah. We're being liberated from literal and fundamentalist interpretations. It has helped me to see myself and others with more patient eyes, and it has fostered gratitude for these ancient stories that still, I believe, can help communities come together in inclusion. Uh, so now back to Emily with our, with our meditation. You did a great job, Christian. Thank you. I had a feeling you'd be good. You know, what, something that came to mind as you were speaking, um, you know, here at TFAM, the, the theme for the week as I was down there at the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries was miracles, signs, and wonders. And with my Pentecostal background, I was a little like, oh God, you know, what is that going to be? Of course, it's through this great progressive lens and they, essentially it came down to like, you are the miracle, the sign, and the wonder that God has sent to help heal the world. And so as you're talking about how, you know, like, gosh, watching the world burn and Jonah's sort of like kind of wanting to do that. He's like, come on. 
I, it made me think about how at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember just telling my therapist, like, my generation's just been waiting to watch the world burn ever since, you know, Fight Club. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of a generational thing. Um, and I do think that there is a little bit of a challenge to not just be Jonah and be like, I'm young, I don't know, like maybe it needs to. To be like, no, but we are invited into that space um, to be part of the healing of the world. And so that's, that's where my mind went with it. And I thought with the, the meditation here, so if you're newer, we usually do a minute or two of silent meditation, just knowing that people from babies to adults make noise and that's okay. Um, I thought maybe we could just meditate a little bit on that last verse here that Christian included. There's no, love, there's no fear in love. And that maybe we could just take a couple of minutes to just maybe do a little repetition of that in silence with our breathing. Like there is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. And then just invite the Spirit to be in that space as we're silent. So come Holy Spirit, there's no fear in love. So God, I ask that when cynicism kind of creeps into our, our thoughts, when we're finding ourselves feeling a little bit jaded about some of the things that we see going on in the world around us, um, I ask that you would help infuse us with hope and that you would help us see the ways just in our everyday lives how we can be part of being sort of your, your hands in the world um, helping to make a better place. I'm challenged by you know, Jonah, you know, what you said to Jonah at the last sentence. You're like, should I not care about all of this stuff? Um, and that you would, you would help us to see that all of the world is under your care and that you do care about it and that the hardships and what we're doing to the environment and what we do to each other breaks your heart. Um, and just help inspire us um, and show us how we can be part of helping mend this world. 
in the way of love without fear. In your name I pray, amen.